go yes, we roll taste. 360 degrees, high high, 360 degrees, high high, 306, 306, 360 degrees, high high. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine, produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. We are broadcasting live from Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as the East Bay Area. Tonight, we get updates on the effective lockdown that began last September at Corcoran State Prison. The lockdown prompted over 250 people in the prison to go on hunger strike. We'll speak with a family member of one striker, as well as get, as well as groups organizing in support of striking prisoners. And later, police unions across the state are attempting to block the release of officer misconduct records, which have been requested by victims of police violence and other members of the public. We'll speak with Full Circle's technical director, Free Will and Franklin, who filed the records request in Antioch. All that coming up on Full Circle. We're your hosts. I'm Kenny C. And I'm Mari Nakagawa. Keep it locked. One of the reasons why the prison industrial complex has expanded as it has is because we have learned how to forget about prisons, even if they're in our own neighborhoods, even if we have relatives and friends in prison. And if you look in communities of color, almost everybody knows someone who is there or has been there, but we don't know how to talk about it. We don't integrate ideas about what is going on in these places in our daily conversation. We don't teach about the prison system. What this society does, first of all, is gets rid of the people who have the problems. You know, rather than recognizing that they are hurting themselves and they need some help. So the idea is just throw them away. Get rid of them. And if you get rid of them, then we don't have to think about them. And if we don't have to think about them, then we don't have to think about the problems that they have. So we don't really have to address the issue of drugs, which would require us also to talk about pharmaceutical companies. So I guess what I want to suggest that, that we all do is figure out ways of making these issues visible. Because of the way the criminal is constructed, represented, many of us are even afraid to admit that we know someone who could be that kind of a person. But prisoners are like you and me. I mean, yeah, there's some pretty bad people in prison, but there's some pretty bad people who are not in prison. Over one third of all young black men in this country, in prison, now, something is wrong with that. There's a lot of real crime, and not only the people who are uh, represented as criminals are the ones responsible for that crime. I mean, we can talk about corporate crime as well. I mean, we can talk about crimes against the environment that will affect generations to come. But of course, these people, these people generally only 
pay fines if they do that, right? You know, how do we create contact between the inside and the outside? Between prison and what prisons, prisoners call the free world. I don't know how free this world is, because it certainly isn't free for a lot of people who are out here. But at least we can take advantage of the fact that we have the ability to move around in ways that people who are inside don't. As a matter of fact, we can sort of think about the relationship as being the relationship between slaves and abolitionists. And because as a matter of fact, the prison system contains obvious vestiges of slavery. Right? The 13th Amendment abolished slavery for all except those who are being punished for committing a crime. So in a lot of ways, what we see in the penitentiary system in this country is the continuation of the system of slavery. The question is creating some new institutions, institutions that really will speak to the problems that people have who go to prison. You know, rather than this prison system which continues to reproduce the problems, you know, for which people are sent to prison. Good evening, everyone, and welcome again to Full Circle. You just heard the voice of our beloved Angela Davis, who, by the way, just celebrated her 75th birthday last week. We heard her speaking to the ways in which our society conceptualizes prisons and prisoners. Tonight, we wish to shed light on some of the gross misconduct that has been taking place inside our nation's prisons, and specifically at Corcoran, right here in California. Last September, Corcoran State Prison's C3, or 3C, unit went into effective lockdown. No visitation, no canteen, no packages, no educational, rehab, or vocational programming, and very little, if any, yard time. On January 9th, inmates organized a mass hunger strike in protest to the indefinite lockdown. Twenty days later, the warden was forced to the negotiating table. Joining us to discuss the situation at Corcoran, we have Layla, whose husband is currently incarcerated in Corcoran's 3C and has been engaging in the strike. In order to protect Layla and her husband's identity, we will not be using their real names. Layla joins us by phone. Layla, thank you for joining us. Hello. Hi. And thank you so much for joining us. And we're joined in studio by Brooke from the Oakland chapter of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, or IWOC. Brooke, thanks for being here. Uh, Thanks for giving us the hour. So there's a lot to dive into here. Um, Brooke, can you start just by telling us what prompted the lockdown at Corcoran? Um, September 28th, three uh, prisoners were attacked by another uh, inside prisoner formation. And um, that instigated uh, unit-wide lockdown. All five units, uh, no matter what affiliation or racial group, were, you know, locked down. Um, they called it modified programming. But in everything except for like an hour's worth of uh, yard time, it's effectively a lockdown. And around the country generally, but in Corcoran in particular, um, there has been a history of... Um, of situations that um, I'm sorry, I'm um, of, of misconduct, right? So this is not the first time this has happened at Corcoran where there's um, there's been some some misconduct. Well, so so called, but yeah, um, I think you're referring to dog fights or gladiator matches. Um, 
1996, Corcoran made the headlines in a huge way. Um, guards were essentially setting up prisoners from rival factions within the prison society. And inside is a small society with all its own rules and negotiations and agreements and affiliations. Guards intentionally would place uh, rivals within the same small yard space and even bet on the outcome of matches, knowing it would be a fight. And even in many cases, uh, shoot prisoners dead, you know, during the fights. Uh, eight prisoners were shot during a notorious period, this period, and one guard even was pushed to whistleblow. Eight guards were eventually tried for uh, the Sanus practice. Uh, none were convicted of anything. There were some firings, but essentially this has never gone away. Um, this has gone from what they characterized then as like a guard culture run amok, um, attributed largely to a warden who kept his head down or like was inattentive, um, to, which is largely inaccurate. CDCR fosters a violent environment in many of its units. Um, the, the system is very large, and there's a variety of environments, but by and large, in higher-level security environments, they, they maintain control by enforcing racial segregation and stoking violence between different population segments. CDCR calls them gangs. That's a propaganda term and a very othering term. And also basically carries stigma like using the word terrorist or like anything else. And we don't use that because, one, it's ahistorical, it's inaccurate, and it's insulting, and we don't wish to further the state's narrative. What's gone from a 96 scandal um, it was, it was essentially an incident rising to the surface by chance of one guard willing to drop a dime about the whole culture inside. And there are many ways in which they can stoke conflict or violence, and we can talk with that, and I'm sure Layla can drop some examples of exactly how they do that. But in this environment, like recently, uh, mm -hmm. they are staging what's called dogfights. It's a common term inside. Mm -hmm. when you, for everyone knows what you're talking about. Or it's called a two-and-two, two, where they basically drop two of one faction into a yard, maybe 15 to 20 COs, like, you know, guards in the yard, basically watching mm -hmm. for fun. And then they drop one or two from another segment in there, uh, basically to enact summary punishment or stoke conflict between the different factions. Like, why, why do they do that, you would say? Like, why right. do they stoke violence? They pretend to be the arbiters of violence. That's not true at all. A unified prisoner front is very, uh, can organize and take care of themselves. Prisoners always negotiate amongst themselves and have agreements. And in California at this moment, there's a historic long-standing agreement called the Agreement to End Hostilities, which was a product of the 2011-13 hunger strikes. Mm -hmm. Interracially organized statewide hunger strikes against solitary. The, the brothers who organized this uh, penned an agreement to end hostilities. The four major racial population segments, like AB, the white, or Woods, uh, Southern Mexicans, Northern Mexicans, and the black factions, um, and like 19 other population representatives also signed the document and it basically put a ceasefire in effect like no racial beef on the yard we'll settle our differences between us and not give CDCI the satisfaction of like doing their work for them and like brutalizing each other the rival faction within Corcoran 3C Fresno Bulldogs are not a signatory to that and have basically derived all their power from being a spoiler or a violator of prisoner solidarity 
So like that's essentially the situation that that set off, you know, the situation side conduct. So it's like a bit more than misconduct. It's basically a continuation of policy and a, like a long-standing guard culture and even like prison system mandate. Mm-hmm. Layla, can you go into this um, a little further? Can you talk more about the culture within the California Department of Corrections um, and this? This culture of violence that occasionally comes to the surface um, and is deemed, you know, an outlier, but really is part of the system as a whole. Um, Layla, are you with us? I am. I'm sorry. I, I'm trying. My reception was really bad. I'm so sorry. No problem. I'm sorry. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, we were wondering um, if you can speak, sort of continue off of what Brooke was saying about um, the practices, the guard culture within California Department's, Department of Corrections. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to say real quick, as far as um, the, the, the fighting and the, because they say that they're incremental, the one-on-one or the two-on-two, and um, I... Basically, they use that as a called an incremental. Um, but I just wanted to say one thing. To me, how are they? How are they um, incrementals when they're they are gladiator fight dog fights? Um, you have they literally clear out the whole yard and have like twenty or thirty seals uh, in the yard laughing and joking while you know the inmates are in there fighting. They literally leave their buildings. This is happening like now. They leave their buildings to go and watch these fights. And COs are correctional officers? Correct. I'm sorry, yes, correctional mm-hmm. officers. Uh-huh. And, I'll, and another, anytime an inmate tries to do something positive, the guards discourage them. They'll search their cells for no reason. They'll take their, you know, their personal food um, away. They'll take it out of their cells. They've been putting sandbags in front of their doors. Um, I, they're, they're so rude, especially to families. Like when you go to visit, you know, they look down at us. They make it hard for us to even get in the visiting room past, you know, the metal detectors. They'll say, oh, you're wearing something inappropriate when you're wearing a turtleneck. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they want you to go back and forth and change. So you can just be like, you know what, forget it. I'm going home, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another example, like purposely, when an inmate transpacks to another prison or they'll break their TV, tablet, whatever they have, they'll break it or they'll lose it. Or they won't send it to them for like months and months at a time because they just feel that they can do that. They feel that they can talk and treat, you know, inmates or even even families any way they want. Mm. So, Layla, when did you first hear about this particular lockdown? What information were you receiving? Actually, I I heard about it um, that weekend of September 28th because mm. I believe that. There was, it was like a Friday because that I heard about it that weekend when they canceled the visits. Um, but I didn't know nothing. I didn't know at all nothing. I just, you know, you get an email from B, B Pass saying that the prison's on lockdown, and that's all I knew. And so you haven't been able to see your husband since September? Correct. Correct. Wow. And have you He's spoken with him? Do you know um, has, how it's affected him, his health, and also you and your family? Um, yeah, we, you know, we write letters and I know he's lost 12, I know he's lost 12 pounds. Um, he was telling me, you know, he was getting headaches and cramps and there's, you know, that there was numerous inmates that had to be hospitalized because of this. And, um, 
you know, he's also, you know, he's like, you know, I, you know, I would write him, he writes me back, and I say, hey, why don't you go check out? He says that, you know, if that the nurses come around and uh, they ask, oh, do you want me to check their vitals? Do you want the medical attention? And um, early on, though, the CEO set a tone for the inmates. For example, um, when the nurses come and ask, if you step out to do that, the CEOs after, they're going to go right up in your cell and they're going to totally mess it up and search it and make it a tornado as a, like, as a form of retaliation because they do not want a record of all these inmates, you know, getting medical attention. So mm. they don't even, they don't even go and ask for attention. There's prisoners that are diabetics, mm. prisoner, you know, that, need, they, that they won't even ask because they don't even want the retaliation. And for folks just tuning in, we're speaking about the lockdown and hunger strike at Corcoran State Prison. Our guests are Layla on the phone, whose husband is currently incarcerated in Corcoran and has been participating in the strike. And Brooke is in studio from the Oakland chapter of IWALK. Um, so on January, as we were referring to, January 9th, prisoners organized to take action against this indefinite lockdown. Um, can you, Brooke or Layla, talk about it, lay it out for us, how these 200 people within Corcoran organized to go on hunger strike. You want to take that, Leila? Or shall I? <laughs> go for it. <laughs> okay. Um, the prisoners that were on hunger strike are all affiliated. They're all Southern Mexicans. They were, they were the ones who initiated the hunger strike, and they were the target of the attack. And uh, so communication happens within a prison. I mean... I'm kind of explaining prison society to half of America that doesn't understand what life is like inside. Um, half of America has had family inside, so it kind of understands this. So prisoners communicate all the time, whether it's notes under the door or uh, people. I mean, people will pass notes for other racial segments within a block because it's, you know, it it's a code. And when it came down, like... You had nothing to do but organize. <laughs> they had September 28th till like January. They had October, November, uh-huh. December. They had three months to sit in their cells and do nothing. So basically you're debating like what you can do. And essentially CDCR, there, there's very little you can do. They've essentially outlawed all kinds of political organization or even elected prisoner representatives. Or they basically behead... Any organization that attempts to do anything even nonviolently, um, they did that as well during the hunger strike in the way they came in and took the MAC reps, which is like men's advisory council representative. Every every population segment or block will elect like a representative for this kind of advisory council so they can negotiate amongst themselves agreements and also like meet with the warden or the warden knows who to go to to talk about like prison issues supposedly. They During the hunger strike, they actually, actually, it happened after the phone campaign we initiated on the outside. They went and grabbed leadership and threw them into ADSEG, which is solitary confinement, is disciplinary solitary, not long term. But how it was organized, like prisoners organize themselves constantly. On every yard and every block, there's basically a society with a social order inside. Many people during the national prison strikes were like surprised prisoners do anything. It's it's kind of part of the cultural violence that's done to prisoners. They're basically objects, even of charity or concern, or of brutality or receivers of violence. They never ascribe agency or decisions or like ability to them. But meanwhile, 
inside, you know, if, if prisoners got their their act together, they would essentially run the prison. You know, they they're the ones that basically make everything run. Mm -hmm. They negotiate amongst themselves. There are always agreements, even on yards that are kind of at war. There's always, you know, an organization. There's an economy. There's trading. There's loans. There's political educators. There's people that are elders. There are people that are, you know, young bucks, etc. So it's kind of natural that a hunger strike happens, and there's a tradition of it, especially in Corcoran. Corcoran was the epicenter, you know, one of the epicenters of the large historic hunger strikes in California. Corcoran and the Pelican Bay Shoe. Um, Corcoran is still has a shoe. Um, smaller one than before, but there are four facilities in California that had the shoe, which was a secure housing unit, which is mm -hmm. long-term solitary, mm -hmm. which is Pelican Bay, uh, High Desert, and Susanville has one, Tehachapi, and uh, Corcoran. So, I mean, that this, that's kind of the long answer how prisoners organize and that they always organize, mm -hmm. you know. It's like asking how do people meet people, You're like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just like on the outside, except with a little more ingenuity and uh, risk on the inside. And they released a list of demands. Yeah. What were their demands? Do you want to read those off, Layla? Yeah. Um, they were to lift the lockdown, uh, allow visits, you know, allow the inmates to attend uh, education and vocational programs that, you know, that they're already enrolled in and to allow them to get, you know, their commentary, their store and their packages and also to get their 10 hours of uh, yard. Um, but they were, if they were lucky, they would just get like one hour a week if they were lucky. And I wanted to add, um, you know, about the, the, um, the shoe, the security housing unit, um, they are slammed down 20, you know, they're slammed down. That's, that's lockdown and they get their 10 hours uh, a week. They get their, uh, packages and their store and they, and they are allowed, um, access to the law library. But, you know, here in corporate, they're not even giving them any of that because they're seeing um, their safety risks. And that's why they're not allowed privileges to program. And, but safety risks as far as the, you know, the workers, uh, the, the correctional officers, the workers in CDC and for the inmate security. But in the um, in the SHU, in, they're allowed to do it as, as far as the, the COs are you know, able to do it and be okay. There, there, nothing's going on. You know, there's no violence or nothing. They're okay to go ahead and run all that. But in the main line, right there at three C, the seals are in danger. I don't get it. Like, I don't, I don't get that at all. But in the shoe, um, the seals are running everything, and that's a lockdown. But this is modified, and you're not doing anything. It doesn't make sense. So this Monday, the organizers and strikers in Corcoran had a victory. The warden was forced to negotiate. What do you think brought him to this moment? Either Layla or Brooke, whoever wants to jump in. I, um, as far as I feel that he was pressured from the outside, definitely pressure is the factor. I feel emails, all the calls, you know, the, um, the media the IWOC is like for you guys for having us on the air. Um, I that's what actually I feel that's what actually gave them you know that victory. The warden, I know he doesn't read his emails, but he's getting hundreds and hundreds of emails on the same subject from different people. His boss, Eternal Affairs, every everybody, and you know, so he knows what he knows what's going on, and he's feeling the pressure. So I, I feel like 
you know, it was definitely the outside that that brought that victory. And how can people, I mean, so balance, like, putting pressure from the outside, but there's also the risk of retaliation within, um, how do people sort of balance that? Well, I can speak as an outside organizer, in that uh, IWOC especially, and most outside prisoner support groups, with some exceptions, uh, take leadership from inside. Um, we don't push any tactics or give a false impression of how much power there is on the outside. And prisoners are complete experts on their own risk and situation. We respond to prisoner organizing and requests. We, we didn't organize this. We don't uh, organize. I mean, right now in this country, there's probably another uprising that you're never going to hear about. Mm -hmm. Every day somewhere in this country, there is a collective prisoner uprising. That we're just not hearing about and this happens constantly but when we hear about it I mean we outside support kind of offers its help because uh, a lot of our membership is ex-incarcerated or had family inside um, many of the other prisoner groups are the same and many of us come from that half of America that you know knows what's up so in terms of like balancing it like prisoners call the shots in this case inside like Many, I mean, I also want to credit all the strikers themselves for, like, bringing the word to the negotiating table. Because there was a whole host of dirty tricks, plus the specter of basically being hospitalized, being raised as retaliation through dogfights, uh, as, as deterrence to the strike. They, you know, like, like Layla said, made it a choice between medical attention or being shaken down. And then get, that's also a way of guards of, like, hiding the shakedown in the paperwork. They faced, uh, like, the dogfight. Like, in your week, you've been on hunger strike for 20 days, and you could be put into a yard to basically defend yourself. You face all these, you know, aggressions that are basically off the books, you know, in ways of, you know, basically trying to break the strike in the way they took leadership, mm -hmm. like, out of their cells and threw them into solitary. Mm -hmm. Not seeking to negotiate or de-escalate, but to basically crush people. They threw down sandpipes, which are sand, as Layla was saying, like sandbags at the bottom of all the doors, because um, inside, like all the doors have like an inch and a half, like even an inch or maybe two inches of gap underneath the doors. And you can slide food or kites, which are like notes, to each other. They put those down so that prisoners can like even share medicine or like sugar for the diabetics or Gatorade mm -hmm. or even a sandwich or notes or anything. So the strikers, by maintaining unity and discipline, you know, also, you know, brought the warden to the, to the negotiating table. Mm. Well, thank you, Leila, for being on the line with us. And thank you, Brooke, for being in studio with us. We'll be right back after this short music break. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 on your FM dial. You just heard Death Row by Chris Stapleton. Tonight we're exploring how our criminal justice system effectively condones and upholds the inhumane treatment of incarcerated folks. And we are joined by Brooke of Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, the Oakland chapter, and also by Layla, who has a family member inside Corcoran at this moment. So I'd like to ask, what is the current status of negotiations within Corcoran at this moment? Um, From what I heard, um, they promised store packages. Um, They're in the making of a schedule uh, for yard. Um, That's it so far. Um, Of course, I know the inmates want their visits and they want their education and vocational programs. you know, as soon as possible. And another thing, you know, CDCR, they are the ones who say social ties are proven to be a strong factor in an inmate's rehabilitation. So they, so that would be a part of visiting, you know, that's actually, they want the visiting and their programs back. Sure. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm wondering if um, you can talk about how um, they really, CDCR dehumanizes not only the prisoners, but their families and how their so-called mission in um, creating strong social bonds is undermined uh, by their practices. If you could talk about your experiences um, as a family member of someone on the inside. Um, You know, one time I I was at, I'll make it quick, I was at visit and um, I was using, um, I was using my husband's um, bandana um, to clean my hands and a female uh, correctional officer came to me and she took it from me. She's like, you can't have this. She's yelling, taking it from me, but looking at him. I said, yes, he can. I bought it for him. She goes, no, we don't allow these here. And um, she was like, the whole visiting room just stared at us. And I said, yes, they, you know, I'm like, yes, they are allowed here. I purchased it. And she said, she just went off. Don't be telling me how to do my job. And mm. if you want to be a correction officer, you go to school for it and, and, and know the rules, this and that. And she, she left with his um, bandana and I was like oh my god there was a lady there from the, um, the inmate family counseling and she came up to me she's like do you mind if I go tell the, the visiting sergeant something I'm like I don't care go ahead I wasn't going to say anything because I just feel like nothing's going to be done and I don't want no problems next time I come or I don't want to be targeted or I don't want my visits cut short so I'm just like quiet and then um, my husband got up and went you know talked to one of the seals like hey you know about the bandana and then like, I was just really pissed, like, you ruined my visit. Then mm-hmm. towards the end of the visit, she came back to me, and she's like, here, and she gave it to him, and she looked at me again, and she's like, I guess you guys can have these. She's like, sorry, and she mm-hmm. just left. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, see, that's the stuff I'm talking about. Like, she just wants to, like, because she thinks she could use that towards us. You know, she she doesn't even know. She just wants to come and, 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 and discourage us and get us upset. You know, and, and it's like, for what? Why do you guys treat people that way we're just minding our own business you know i'm just i'm just cleaning my hands with with his bandana and you have to come pick on us Layla or brooke i'm wondering if either of you can speak to the kinds of educational or training programs that uh, co's or correctional officers have to go through in order to get their jobs it's a two-week boot camp and then you're done that's it. Oh. That's, that's it. it yeah that's it and uh Essentially, when prisons were built, like in the Central Valley, um, 
Well, one, they're basically built as warehouses, you know, first, and then they wrote all the laws to fill them. And it was basically a white rural jobs program. Sure. You know, but like they also pride themselves on being affirmative action. So you got a lot of black and brown guards as well, hired from the same populations to basically do dirt to, the, you know, to your own people. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's not much training at all. I mean, but we don't advocate for more CO training ourselves, you know. We're not looking for a nicer or more humane prison. You know, at least that's IWOC's like politics and analysis. But, you know, you're just putting a smiley face on a beast, you know. Um, and, the, and the little thing, if you gave them more training, it would just make them more sophisticated in all the little ways they go at you. They're, they, it's not by accident that all these little off-the-books, you know, violence and, you know, provocations happen and the dehumanization. It's essentially and it's, like, it's an extension of like overall policy that's why they're given free reign they're never you know prosecuted for anything um so so basically describing it as a scandal or people stepping out of their training is like a nonsense liberal position mm -hmm. you know they're, they're doing their job and their job is to hassle people and like break them down and they they get the signal from above them from their lieutenants and their sergeants and then the captains and then it's like straight from the top you know so i mean when this stuff rises to the top and becomes a big deal, like Kamala Harris, when she was AG, like, co-signed off on all the hostilities. Mm -hmm. Secretary Diaz, like, or even before him, Scott Kernan, like, signed off on all the hostilities. The signal comes from the top, and it basically systems reproduce themselves. Like, the next generation of guards is going to be just like the previous generation of guards. Mm -hmm. So, two weeks of boot camp and then, <laughs> you know, a little firearms training, and then you're in. You're basically a slave catcher and like a plantation manager. So, Layla, do you want to add anything to that? No, I think you pretty much said it all. That's exactly <laughs> how I felt. Like, honestly, exactly. I mean, if you give them more training, it's just going to make them think that, that they're smarter. And, and it's, it's not like that. I, I really feel that it's because they don't, they can't relate. Like, they can't relate. They don't, they don't probably have somebody in prison or they don't you know they can't relate to anything so they don't know how to to you know to treat to treat somebody that that's how that's my opinion and they're already quite sophisticated in the way they hide stuff i mean you can find out about all the dog fights on paper if you just uh prr or like foia like a records request for incident reports you the see the, the, the yeah you just see the legacy of violence they'll say like we drop these two in and then we drop these two in but then on a separate piece of paperwork, it says you're programming them separately. So then what, Then it'll show a pattern of like day after day after day. Mm -hmm. Or even like every Tuesday was like a fight Tuesday. Like every Tuesday mm -hmm. would come around, they would they would yard you. They would like set you up for a fight. And then like you basically knew the day was coming. You're wondering who's going to get hit. Yep. You know, so it's all on paperwork and people would just like seek it out. But you got to even force to sue them to like even give you the paperwork. IWAC right now has put in a, like a public records request for Corcoran like 60 days ago, 90 days ago. They're basically in complete violation of law now. You're supposed to respond within 10 days and then get it within 30. Like they're, they're like two months over. So you basically need a lawyer to force anything out of them. All the, they've refused to release even racial statistics about who they have inside locked up and torturing. Basically all the racial information we have about the makeup of the prisoner population is via federal sources that they have to report to in the DOJ or, you know, above them. They don't release any of that in their population reports. 
So the guards are already really sophisticated in how they write stuff up. Like that little trick where the guard, like the, the nurse goes around, how do you hide a shakedown? You make them step out in order to get their vitals checked, and then you go through all their stuff and break it up so it doesn't get written up as a shakedown. So when the prisoner complains about it in a grievance process, they just throw their hands up and say, you know, like, what happened? Like, nothing. There's nothing that happened. So they're already really well-versed in the bureaucracy on how to do dirt. So I don't want to train them in any more, like, sophistication. Like, they're just, you know, they're, they're a blunt instrument, and that's just it. Layla, did you have something to add? And as far as, you know, what goes on there in Corcoran State Prison, I mean, the, you know, I've been telling people to watch the movie Fallon. That movie Fallon, if you, you know, when you actually, you know, well, let me see what this movie's about, and you read about, you know, the introduction, it says that it's a film, you know, stories, you know, based on events that took place at the notorious California State Prison, Corcoran. Like, I mean, they've been making movies about it. Mm-hmm. That's what Fallon's, you know, it's about that. It made 60 minutes. <laughs> oh, yep. Yeah, and now CDCR, like, we've got their, like, statements online, like, professing not to know what a dogfight or a gladiator match is. And it's like, we have the paperwork, man. Like, you guys screwed up so bad it made national news. And now you're pretending like nothing's going on. It's just, uh, you know, it's just shameless. But, you know, whatever. Like, they're an opponent. That's what they're going to do. They're doing their job, too, which is to hide people away and do dirt. And for folks who um, aren't familiar with Corcoran, it's located in Kings County, about an hour south of Fresno and an hour north of Bakersfield. And like most prisons in the U.S., it's strategically placed in a depopulated area. They're usually rural, often conservative. Um, can you talk, Layla, about this the strategic geography and how it um, affects um, the connection with families, the people who are hired there? Um, and just the overall isolation. But do you have, do you have those as far as that? Do you have the, like, can you speak on that? On like the locations and why they're set yeah. up that way? And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I mean the, the worst example, they're like geographical strategy is Pelican Bay, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they were built in a time when there was also a surplus of land and a drought. And there are several like, you know, crises facing capital and power and, like, you know, the so-called justice system. And building prisons, like, as a development scheme uh, in, like, rural counties was, like, a political solution mm. to jobs, to, like, cheap land because they weren't under agricultural production anymore. Promising jobs was an easy way to steamroll them through, through, like, uh, provincial, basically, county governments. Um, Susanville, the same thing. And the Central Valley is... I mean, they call it the prison corridor, like from Tehachapi, like all the way up north to all the way to, you know, like Sacramento, CSP Sacramento or Old Folsom. It's a whole string of prison complexes. And oftentimes you'll have one prison like built across the street from another, like at Soledad. You know, they're, they're separate names, but uh, CTF, Soledad and Salinas Valley are like right next to each other. And it's a mini city of like 11,000, you know, prisoners locked up. Wow. So essentially it's a way to... One, like, punish families. Uh, two, like, prisons are designed as, like, oblivion, like a, a black hole. Uh, you're supposed to be forgotten and a million miles away from things. Um, they don't have an island or another planet to send prisoners to. They send them into the middle of the Central Valley, like, four, five, six hours away from, like, your families. Um, and it was basically an economic political solution as well. It was a huge building program, a boom. And they, they basically 
passed, you know, the spending bills. They built the prison complex as a basically political tool to discipline whole swaths of the population. Then they wrote the laws to fill them up, and they're still full. You know, even with, like, the new release, like, uh, legislation about letting people go or the overcrowding lawsuits, they're still 130% at capacity, you know. Can you speak a bit about those recent lawsuits about the overcrowding? Well, there was the big one, which resulted in what was called realignment. Uh, AB 109, uh, back in 2007, there was a loss. There was basically a huge like, medical crisis and like death crisis within facilities with valley fever and so many people dying like every week that uh, due to overcrowding and lack of medical attention and what was called valley fever that was killing people en masse. Um, and the warehousing of prisoners was extreme. They were using a model that's still used in like the South and other places, but dormitories, people triple bunked in like big uh, gymnasiums looking things where you have 150 people in like a really tight sweltering room. And of course, like disease and other things just take off like rampant. So the overcrowding crisis like made it, made its way through the courts and essentially forced CDCR to uh, like juggle its numbers. Like first strategy they did was like send 10,000 prisoners out of state. They didn't decriminalize anything. Mm. They didn't like they just shipped them to Mississippi or to Arizona or you know to to Nevada. You know the different facilities that are sometimes privately run, sometimes leased out, sometimes thrown into counties. Then the next big uh, way they shuffled the numbers and why the numbers you get for the present state system aren't accurate is because they moved all the revocations of parole or probation to county facilities. Basically, anyone who violated, uh, instead of being sent back to state facilities, was shuttled back to county facilities that were in no way like built or intended for like long-term sentence housing. Mm. So all those people are basically... You know, there's a whole column now in like the published population reports, which are like um, compiled weekly and archived. There's a whole column now which has zeros in it, which is, but it's basically that whole number of people on parole or probation violation were shoved into like county facilities, which have um, no like little programming at all, smaller yards, the same overcrowding, but like moved to a different position, and then no contact visits either in county facilities. You know. So a lot of people end up doing their time then, so it's a little numbers game. So the number of people under control is the same, except that they've modified appearances in order to, like, basically not meet the spirit of the, the, the finding of the court and just shift the problem somewhere else out of sight. And right now, it's still at about 130% of facility. There are different, like, release, uh, like, 47 and 57, Prop 47 and Prop 57. Um, they're basically creating different classes of prisoners for release, for consideration of release. And they're essentially, like, retooling, they're reorganizing right now. Um, they're uh, half-heartedly agreeing to these releases and programs, but they're also re-stratifying the system, creating different classes of prisoner and reserving the right and the, like, License to like label prisoners however they want, whether they're violent or they meet certain criteria. And even though a proposition will get passed, all the nuts and bolts of it, all the qualifications, and like people who will qualify for it is like left up to CDCR. So eventually they're given like uh, 
just a free pass. They get to like just completely reorganize at their will. Like no power is taken away from the prison system or like the DAs or the whole pipeline to prison. But they're creating different classes of prisoners, like the supposed violent or nonviolent, mm. which is like it's still essentially accepting the state's definitions, which is always a losing proposition if you're interested in liberation, justice, or like dealing with like public safety or harm. So, um, Layla, well, we recently, so in a recent um, sort of update about Corcoran on the IWOC website, there were a lot, um, the comments were just filled by family members, um, people with connection to Corcoran, um, and a lot of comments about the current warden at Corcoran. I'm wondering, Layla, if you um, could comment to the leadership right now. Um, as far as uh, the warden, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know him. I don't know anything about him. All I know is that what he allows to go on um, there at the prison. Um, as far as, I mean, are you referring to him, to, him, to the warden or? Um, yeah, we just, uh, there are multiple comments um, calling, talking about his, um, his um, prejudices. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, as far as that, yeah, I mean, I hear that they say he's uh, racist, um, that he, you know, he has some type of vendetta with Southern, you know, Southern inmates, um, and that's why he's doing what he's doing. So, yeah, I mean, that's what I hear. I've, I've never personally came in contact with him, but yes, that's what they say, that he's racist and that he does not like Southern Mexicans at all. Mm. And that's why he's making it hard for them. You know, he, you know, he will, he won't program, he won't bring Northerners to the prison because he knows, he knows Northerners and Bulldogs cannot program. Nowhere in the CDCR do Bulldogs program with anybody, Northerners, nothing, but he wants to force these two groups to program when it's never happened. Why? Do you have a problem, a personal issue with one, with one group? So that that's why it makes one say, "Are you racist or prejudiced towards one?" And if to speak to some of the variations, and also like this warden in particular, well, one he was brought out of retirement. He retired after the big hunger strikes. I don't know if he was put into retirement or if he retired himself, but they brought him back, like in two thousand eighteen which is why, like, tensions and violence escalated at the prison dramatically. You know, and it's reported, too, that he just hella disrespectful in those MAC representative meetings, uh, basically just dictating everything and telling people it's my way the highway, like real cowboy attitude, reportedly. Um, other prisons have a similar profile of populations and security level, uh, like Avenal and CTF, uh, Soledad and Pleasant Valley. They've figured out uh, there's, there isn't any of this dogfights or, like, uh, stuff going on. It's because they've basically figured out separate visitation. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not intentionally stoking violence. It's just, you know, we can always, like, hypothesize as to why Sky is doing it. I mean, but Corcoran is, like, a flagship facility. Yeah. It's, like, a huge facility. It's, like, like I was saying, it's, like, one of the four that had a shoe or has a shoe. Mm-hmm. Um and it's a really high-profile facility. It's not some little out-of-the-way place. It's, like, central to the system, you know. So 
you know, it might be an experiment in like how far they can push it. Um, and, and, but it's nothing special. Like there are smaller instances where the same kind of tactic is used. Now, even in county facilities, like in order to basically break up, you know, prisoner solidarity or to stir up violence so that they're, you know, more pliable or there's like more punishment tools in the guards, like mm-hmm. toolkit, they'll instigate violence. So it's, it's not extraordinary. But there are examples right next to Corcoran up and down the highway that have the same situation, same population, same security level that don't have any of these problems. And Layla, in our final minutes, um, what does your husband, his allies request of the public right now? How can folks support him um, and also you and families with loved ones in Corcoran? Um, Just to let people know what's going on in there. Um, You know, let them know that real crime is happening by staff in you know California state prisons in Corcoran and, and everywhere. I mean they, people need to know by emailing um, you know the governors, any elective officials in Sacramento, um, you know, just keeping people aware of what's going on because a lot of people don't know. A lot of people, you know, people don't know what's going on and just, you know, being a voice for them. Mm-hmm. And um, Brooke, your final words and also how people can support and get involved with IWOC if, if they like. Uh, follow us on Twitter, the national account. Just, you know, look up IWOC. That's where a lot of the calls and they go out and it's maintained. But final words, like shout out to everyone locked up inside CDCR mm-hmm. that's listening right now on your little transistor radios. We know you're out there. And uh, keep your head up off top. Mm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So we have been speaking with Layla, whose husband has been participating in the hunger strike at Corcoran, and Brooke from the Oakland chapter of the Incarcerated Workers Committee. We'll have information about both about your organization posted in our shows at in our show notes at kpfaapprentice.org. Thank you all so much for joining us. And now we are excited to welcome our very own first voice director, Freewill and Franklin, to the show. He's here to spread the word hey, hey. about a string of suits police unions across the state are filing in attempts um, to block the release of officer misconduct records. Welcome. welcome to the show, Frank. Thanks for having me on for a minute. So what is the deal in Antioch right now? What's going on? So across the state of California and Antioch included, um, people have been filing um, 1421 request for public information um, to see what uh, the officer's records that may have um, caused a death in their family, um, had killed one of their family members, or maybe they have um, been beaten or abused by these officers. So um, 1421 allows you to file documents and to get them to release their public record, uh, get them to release their internal records. And what's happening is um, all the police officers associations around the state are suing their cities to block the release of these documents. And I filed my paperwork on Tuesday last week. Um, Wednesday, the the Antioch Police Officers Association hired um, a high-powered attorney, um, the one that represented Measurely in the Oscar Grant case. Thursday, they filed for a temporary restraining order, and Friday, they were in court, and they were granted that temporary restraining order to block the release of those documents. Wow. Um, Frank, and I understand you're learning as you go through this process, but how can folks um, learn about filing a request for release of records in their county? So um, a lot of people are using the ACLU. So if you go to ACLU on the Internet and look for the um, Northern California chapter, they are the ones that are involved. They're um, filing 
um, they're involved in my case now since um, Contra Costa County has Martinez, Richmond, Concord, Walnut Creek, Antioch, and the Cocoa County Sheriff's Department are all suing their um, their areas so that they could block the release of the documents. But the ACLU is representing um, me, uh, two newspapers, uh, I think it's the Chronicle and maybe the East County Times, and then also the father of um, P.D. Perez, Rick Perez, um, P.D. Perez, who was killed by the, um, I think it was the Richmond police a while back. Um, his attorney is also involved. And can you speak about some of the actions that are coming up in the next few days, Frank? Yeah, real important. If you're um, from the Antioch, Concord, Pittsburgh area, Brentwood, Oakley, anywhere out there, um, the Antioch Police Officers Association has made the move to sue the city to block the release of the documents. We are going to be gathering at the Antioch City Council meeting on this coming Tuesday, February 5th at 5.30. The Antioch City Attorney has made it clear that he believes the city should move and release the documents, and he wrote that in his um, his official documents. But the Antioch City Council will be meeting in closed session at 6 p.m. Tuesday night to discuss what their move will be. And we want to be out front when they come in to encourage them Absolutely. to do what their attorney says and release the document. So that'll be this coming Tuesday, February 5th. We'll be meeting at 530 right outside the City Hall. That's 200 H Street in downtown Antioch. 200 H as in Horse Street in downtown Antioch. And then... Coming up Friday next week, a week from today, February 8th, all those cases I mentioned, Concord, Pitts, uh, Concord, Martinez, Richmond, Walnut Creek, the Cocoa County Sheriff, and Antioch, all those cases will be heard on Friday, February 8th, in Martinez um, at 725 Court Street. And we're going to gather outside the courthouse at 1230, and we're going to have our signs and encourage people to um, let it be known that we believe the document should be released, and that is what the law says. And then at 130, we're going to file into the courtroom and try to fill the courtroom up, and that would be Department 12. So real quickly, I'll just go over that. Tuesday, February 5th, we're meeting in Antioch at 200 H Street. That's the Antioch City Hall, 530. And then Friday, February 8th outside the courthouse at 1230, 725 Court Street in Martinez. And then we're going to be out there holding our signs, um, doing some chants and encouraging uh, the court to see it our way that the law says the documents are, it's time to be released. And that's what we want. We really want to encourage the court and the city councils to follow um, what their attorney says there in Antioch. Thank you, Frank. All right, yeah, thanks for having me on, and I hope to see anybody from Antioch or in the surrounding area out there on Tuesday. Absolutely. And so, unfortunately, we are running out of time, but we do want to give a big, big thank you to our guests for joining us tonight, to Layla, to Brooke, to Frank. Thank you all for the good work that you are doing in the world. And before we wrap up, a quick note. Uh, the city of Oakland is currently evicting curbside residents at East 12th and 23rd Street Encampment uh, for the past few days. Tractors, bulldozers have been tearing down um, their homes and the community. So folks are asking for eviction support. If allies can please be present this upcoming Thursday and Friday at East 12th and 23rd Avenue in East Oakland to help, to offer support, and to document and bear witness to our city's treatment towards the houseless. This is all connected. So go to the village in Oakland.org or connect 
the village or connect to the village in Oakland on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks, Mari. And as a reminder, folks, KPFA's First Voice Apprenticeship is looking for new voices, and you could be one of them. If you have a story to tell or if you've always wanted to be on the radio, check out our training program at kpfaapprentice.org, or feel free to give us a call at 510-848-6767, extension 235. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Our executive producer is Ms. M. Our technical director is Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. We have been your hosts, Kenny C. and... Mari Nakagawa. Special thanks to Aria on the soundboard and to our tech assists, Sharon, Shaquille, and Hana. Thanks for hanging out with us on Full Circle. La Onda Bajita is next. (laughs) 